good afternoon. This is Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Um, we, today's uh, guest is uh, Patricio O'Donnell. He is a head of the um, psychiatry at Pfizer. Is that correct? That's, That's correct. the correct title. And today we're going to talk about uh, some of his work and some of the also hopefully uh, talk about um, uh, pharmaceutical companies and all that fun stuff. Uh, but uh, Dr. O'Donnell uh, talks a lot about um, his, his work is about um, uh, prefrontal cortex circuitry and how inputs from other parts of the brain, such as nucleus accumbens and uh, hippocampus and thalamic uh, inputs, influence uh, uh, basal ganglia and in terms of how the uh, cortical inputs also uh, can gate uh, these inputs and how all this integration happens at the level of ventral striatum like in the nucleus accumbens. Uh, so hopefully um, you can tell us a little bit about that and then we can move on to uh, some other subjects. But uh, today in, in the room we have uh, Dr. Charlie Wilson. Hello. And Gerard Bodwin. Hello. And I am Carlos Palladini. I'm not Salma Karashi. I'm your host for today. Uh, and today is, today is February 27th, 2014. Salma always begins by saying oh, okay. what day it yeah. is okay. for the historical record. For historical sure. record, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, if you could tell us a little bit about your work, that'd be sure. great. Sure. Thanks, Carlos. Um, I mean, I've been working on a couple parallel streams uh, over the past 10, 15 years. And one of them is what you just mentioned, is a way of in which the basal ganglia, in particular the limbic or ventral basal ganglia circuits, integrate inputs coming from diverse set of uh, areas, such as the prefrontal cortex, the hippocampus, the amygdala, and uh, uh, one, I mean, what probably the main finding, the main uh, observation that we had is that the, these inputs are integrated in very non-linear way, uh, essentially. Uh, depends on what precedes what and how strong one set of inputs are, you could get an augmentation of the responses to another input, or you could get a suppression of responses to other inputs. And this seems to be working in a very uh, kind of non-symmetrical way, uh, in, because hippocampal and limbic inputs seem to facilitate responses to cortical inputs, whereas when we look at the other interaction, prefrontal inputs to the ventral striatum, our observations are that they suppress responses to other inputs transiently, right? But uh, so we see this as a way in which strong activation of the prefrontal cortex, which is needed when you have an animal that's about to make a decision, right? This is a kind of highly co cognitive uh, moment. Uh, that activation pretty much takes the activity in the hippocampus away from being dominated by the hippocampus. So there is kind of an opens a window of time uh, in which probably circuitry, the arrangement of ensemble activities in these circuits could be reshaped depending on whatever, whatever the new behavior uh, needs. So yeah, a lot of your work is uh, also um, looking at uh, behavior and in vivo electrophysiology, mm -hmm. but then um, What's interesting about your work is that then you get insight into sort of the microcircuit of what happens at the level of one spiny neuron and um, perhaps how inner neurons also influence the um, effects of hippocampus versus mm -hmm. thalamus or amygdala. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's one thing I like about being able to uh, to 
ask the same question at different levels of analysis. So we really do go after, you know, slice recordings in which we can determine the impact of local GABA processes and some of them later look at anesthetized animals where we can have a good grasp of the intact circuitry. Uh, and then awake animals in which there is a you know ongoing behavior, and then you know we can look at these interactions among these areas. Uh, and I think by spanning all these levels of analysis, we can get a, a better link, you know, between the cellular mechanisms and the actual behavior. I mean, there's a lot of gaps to be filled here yet, but I think the more we can do at these, you know, multiple levels, then you know we can. Yeah, I was going to ask you so. You know, you're doing something at an awake behaving animal level, mm-hmm. and then you go straight to a slice. Mm-hmm. And, um, of course, there has to be a lot of gaps in there. So how do you, how do you make those links? Uh, I mean, I, yeah, I understand that. Yeah, the it's a tough one to make. I think the tools are here now where we can start filling those gaps with some of the you know, novel techniques. I think optogenetics is, for example, one that now you can use to selectively activate pathways in vivo that you could not do before. So then now you can manipulate, you know, you know specifically hippocampal inputs or parvalvian interneurons in an animal that's doing a behavior. So you could de- definitely just test the question whether this recruitment of interneurons by the cortex, does it really subserve a prefrontal cortical dependent behavior, right? Mm-hmm. So those are experiments that are now we're, we're starting to tackle. Um, if you, I mean, something I brought up at the seminar also that you know there are tools that allow you to look at calcium imaging as a kind of sensor, indirect measure of uh, electrical activity in neurons. Um, so you could have these microendoscopes uh, that you know in vivo in an awake animal you can see the calcium uh, waves in hundreds of cells at the same time. So now you could get a sense of you know the local network and how you know the the activation and activation plays out there. Could you say something about what a microendoscope is and how? Oh, yeah. Okay. This is actually a, it's, it's a construct built by Mark Schnitzer at Stanford. Uh, he essentially is a fiber optic placed into a brain structure. And uh, at the uh, end uh, of the fiber optic, they have built a small system of uh, mirrors and prisms uh, it's very it's a miniaturized microscope, and at the end of it, what they adapted is a a, a cell phone camera, right? Hmm. And then this can be done with telemetry. The image the image collected by that camera, I see there a small wire, or you can do it you know, with telemetry. Hmm. So that camera has enough resolution to pick up, you know, the optical imaging driven at the other end of this uh, fiber optic that can collect. Uh, if, if you put a calcium, essentially you inject a virus that delivers a Alexa or some calcium, uh, fluorescent calcium sensor. And then when the animal is active, uh, you will see that cells that are being activated, you will see this calcium signal. And you could record up to a thousand cells at the same time. And I've seen the data coming on in hippocampal recordings when they look at these place cells. Uh, essentially these are cells that activate in one particular uh, place in, in a maze, right? So essentially it's a mapping uh, kind of uh, correlate. And uh, the place cells have been defined with electrophysiology, with electrodes, so you have a handful of neurons that you can pinpoint cells that are activated at a specific location in, in, in a maze. 
Uh, but with these endoscopes now, by looking at a thousand cells at the same time, you really, I mean, the, the, the entire idea of place cells becomes so evident because you have, you know, at a given, you, you can map the entire maze on that thousands. I mean, there are a few cells that will be activated at very specific locations. And you can see how these uh, gets remapped when the animals learn to navigate a different uh, place. So if you can adapt that idea into a structure like the accumbens or prefrontal cortex, so now you can, instead of mapping the place representation that the hippocampus has, now you can start mapping these, you know, whether it's the motor motor planning or you know some decision making related aspects in in, in, in the comments and prefrontal cortex. I guess that raises the question of what what is uh, encoded in the accumbens and prefrontal cortex because the advantage in the hippocampus is there's a long history of studying place cells and a sort of notion of what is the right thing to record and what's the right mm -hmm. thing for the animal to do, yeah. but in the Nucleus accumbens has never been quite as clear what's the right thing to record or what's yeah. the right. I mean, you're absolutely right. I think that's uh, you know clearly uh, hippocampus. You know, you can definitely you know have the you know the place uh, all this navigation uh, related activity. Sensory cortices, sensory structures have clear you know correlates with you know inputs, whereas in structures like. Uh, the basal ganglia in general, prefrontal cortex, right? So what is driving activity in these cells is not that clear. I mean, you can, I mean, what I said about decision-making, I mean, those are very vague, broad constructs that, you know, but what is the real signal coming there? We don't know, really, we don't know. But I think these tools that are coming online now, this possibility of analyzing multiple cells simultaneously as an animal is running a behavior are going to help us trying to parse out what are the, the, the elements contributing to, to those changes? Uh, but definitely, that's a question that uh, we need to address. We don't know. And so I was trying to, I was just thinking about how tools like that would help. I think that place cells might have been a lot easier to discover that way than they were the original way. Mm -hmm. And one of the things about nucleus accumbens and prefrontal cortex is that there's no shortage of responses. Animals do things and the mm -hmm. cells respond. The problem is that nearby cells respond to completely different things. Absolutely. And so what you get is a sort of a hodgepodge of every different kind of response you could ever imagine, all collected in the nearby regions mm -hmm. in the basal ganglia and in the prefrontal cortex. Yeah. And so you wonder, well, what does that mean? You know, why uh, you know, why don't the cells all respond to the same thing? Yeah. Although in a structure like the the, the Accumbens or the striatum in general, I would not expect cells responding the same way to the same stimulus. I mean, I, I'm really uh, subscribed to this idea that uh, neurons in the accumbens or in the striatum, I mean, form ensembles of activity, right? So, on any given, let's say, uh, if you're looking about a instrumental behavior, right, or a reward-related behavior which is known to drive activity in the accumbens. So you expose the animal to a cue that predicts reward are coming, you know there's dopamine being released there, that's going to change some of the activity there. Uh, you have inputs coming from the prefrontal cortex, other inputs that are going to interact. Uh, and if you see the cells in the accumbens as encoding whatever 
outcome it is, if the animal is going to press the lever to receive the reward or not, right? Somehow, in a way, I think the the actual behavioral output is going to be related to, perhaps even determined by, this pattern of activity in the accumbens. And then the pattern of activity will be different if the stimulus is an auditory tone or some visual cue, or whether the animal has to go to the left side to press a lever or to the right, or if the animal has to approach a touch screen and use the nose to touch, right? So I think this, in a way, this will be a pattern of activity that's going to drive a specific motor command when it goes back to the frontal lobe. Huh. So you're, what you're saying is that actual movements are encoded in there. I mean, the At a high level, actually, so more like an overall plan of movement, right? right. Not a specific movement, but it's more like the of approaching with a paw versus approaching with a nose, right? So which could trigger a set of moral commands. And I, I think the, the, you know, in that regard, the, the Suzanne Haber's idea of spiraling circuit, you know, the spiral in, in the basal ganglia loops could contribute to that. So That's what that is. This is actually the basal ganglia are organized in uh, these recurrent loops that you could see them as closed. Essentially, there is a cortical area that projects a specific area in the striatum, then through the pallidum, thalamus, back to the cortex. And yeah, there is evidence that some of those loops go back to the same area of origin, but also there is some sort of uh, asymmetry in the projection in that they, these loops go back to a different area of the cortex. And the same occurs with the way these loops engage dopamine cells and the thalamus. Uh, and what Suzanne Haber doing very detailed track tracing studies uh, in the monkey cortex, she has identified that these loops, when all the asymmetry in, in these loops, tends to occur in a way that would allow information to be transferred from the more limbic areas to the more motor areas and not the other way around. So if we're looking at it, it would look like a wave, mm-hmm. right? If we're looking at cortex, yeah. some cortical area does something, then this loop th- goes through stratum, goes to the thalamus to a new cortical area. To a new cortex, yeah. And then that would go to another one. It's going to look like Exactly. A wave. So and in a way, you start with a single cortex, perhaps where emotions and like, the idea of movement could start, and then you go through the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex back, yeah, and caudally back into the motor. It would be a pretty slow wave, too, right? How long does it take to get around the loop? Yeah, what's home yeah well, I, this is all track tracing, right? So how long it would take? I mean, but it's not... But you know, because yeah, you've stimulated all these places. No, I, I, I think it would be hundreds of milliseconds. Oh, okay. Right? I mean, if you think about the synaptic delays and multiple synapses like that, I mean, you're still in a reasonable kind of time frame for controlling a response like that. that I think you know, it's actually tense. Make, so it's like yeah. three or four milliseconds from the cortex to the striatum. Yeah. And then striatum to substantia nigra is yeah. maybe five milliseconds yeah. or more. Yeah. In a rat anyway. I don't know about monkey. Well, maybe the disinhibition loops might take a little longer because you have to stop firing yeah. you know, the thalamus. But still, I mean, I'm, I'm saying hundreds on trying to be... and allowing the loop, uh-huh. I mean, three or four iterations there. Uh, but still, it, it's, you know, even if you give 100 or 200, it's... Yeah, you know, it's still within the range of a behavioral response. Yeah, to still fastball behavior. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, so going back to your question about you know how would we expect all the cells responding the same way? I say, I'd say no because. So let's imagine if experiment. I know we can't quite do the experiment yet, but mm-hmm. you might be close to actually doing this. So let's say we're looking in the striatum in a in a behaving animal mm-hmm. with one of these 
uh, microendoscopes and we have cells loaded with a reporter that tells us about firing mm -hmm. and so we can see what cells are firing at any moment at really high spatial mm -hmm. and temporal resolution. Mm -hmm. well, uh, what would we see? Would it just look like white noise, you know, like snow on a television set? Or is it going to look like uh, moving <laughs> patterns that we can interpret? Because if it's just, if everything is spatially mm -hmm. mixed up, yeah. kind of like in the hippocampus, things are kind of mixed up. Cells with one mm -hmm. place cell are right next to cells yeah. with super different ones. So if everything's all mixed up like that, mm -hmm. you could end up seeing... Yeah. Just what looks like noise. Exactly. So this is likely going to require very, um, you know, clever analysis. The analysis has to be very careful here. Essentially, the idea is to look at these activity patterns in these large, you know, ensemble of cells in which you're going to get a handful of cells that are going to be active related to whatever input you're driving, right? But how can you separate that from the kind of noise and, and all the Android activity? Um, and then on top of that, I mean, you have the, also, we're not there yet in the ability to separate the different cell types, because there are, I mean, you have the D1 expressing versus the D2 expressing the interneurons, right? So, uh, perhaps if we can map those into these analysis and then separate, um, you know, the, 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 uh, the different units activated uh, or inactivated on a given behavioral component. Uh, you know, if I think we may be able to get a response, a, a signal there. The way we do it is use this type of approach in multiple brain regions at the same time. Mm -hmm. So then we can correlate, you know, let's say we have a cue that predicts reward and the animal uses to guide the behavior, right? And when we deliver the tone, there is an X number of neurons in the accumbens that light up. And essentially what we want to do is that we want to see them consistently light up. Every time that tone comes or that light comes, these cells are light. Yeah. And when it's a different tone, it's a different type of cells that light up, not, not those. Can we remap that? Can we have the animal relearn that now it's a different tone that predicts the reward a different light and we will see a different ensemble? And will these ensembles be correlated with something similar in cortical regions on the hippocampus? Uh, but I think the, the, the statistical power is going to be in our ability to repeat these and you know, essentially see if we can have a tight correlation between activity and whatever external signal is driving that. Seems like it's just the same type of experiments we used to do, which is go down and just record one mm -hmm. cell at a time. Yeah, but now you, you, you have a thousand at the same time. It's just a higher yield, I suppose. Well, it's more than that because it's you're now looking at the uh, dynamics on between, the entire population yeah, between yeah, cells. Yeah, between cells. Um, but presumably, right, so if you would have different cues that all resulted in press a lever, you know, then maybe on the, like, the last loop through, pressing the lever would always activate the same set of cells or something like mm -hmm. that, right? If, yeah. Assuming that that was the correct potential. Yeah. Yeah. And that could change, actually, the, you know, uh, well, it depends on where, too. I mean, pressing the lever would probably be more driving cells in more motor-related areas. Sure, yeah. Right? So, right. I mean, idea, it would be good if you could map these at a larger scale, covering several different 
areas within the Australia Island. So, there, I mean, because I was a little surprised you took my initial premise that there wasn't any spatial organization yeah. in the yeah. striatum. I but think there's some reason there's, to think that there might be mm-hmm. even kind of micro-scale spatial organization. Mm-hmm. Certainly there's some kind of macro-scale yeah. spatial organization. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, yeah, what do yeah. you think of it? Spa- yeah. The spatial organization of function in the striatum? It's a very old question. Yeah. It's been answered 20 times, 20 yeah. different ways. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the anatomy speaks to probably, you know, a, a, some topography in the projection from, I mean, talking about cortical striatal, right? Um, but functionally, how does that work? I mean, I, I think it's... Uh, it's a tough one to ask, uh, to answer, actually. Um, I do think there is some spatial connectivity, but it all depends on what is driving the units in the striatum. Because if the inputs coming from the cortex are already spatially distributed, then activity in the striatum is going to follow that kind of spatial distribution, then modulated by some of these local phenomena, whether it's interneurons, the cholinergic interneurons, dopamine. So it's going to be kind of you know, refined, if you want, and that message keeps going downstream. Uh, so in the end, I mean, the, the simplistic view is that the striatum is a very sophisticated relay station of inputs that come from cortical areas in which these inputs are kind of you know, refined and, and, and filtered, enhanced, and then they keep going back through the striatal loops. Uh, but in a way, so the striatum has to work with what it receives. So if you know, the topography is on the inputs. And I think you know, that, that's why I think if we're going to work, uh, go after tools that allow us to record from many cells at the same time, it will be probably important to do, if we do it in the accumbens or any striatal region, to look at the matching area in the cortex and trying to determine correlations in patterns there. You know, if we can find it. Now you have two cameras on Yeah, it. or more, or five and six. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and well, and then analyzing that would be... Yeah, it's going to be an analysis nightmare. Yeah, no, I guess you do an experiment and you spend months analyzing the data. So. Yeah. Because isn't the calcium signal... What's the what's the, the temporal sensitivity of the calcium signal? It's on the order of like... Like hundreds of milliseconds, isn't it? Yeah, these these are slower signals. Actually, right. they're clearly it doesn't have to be that slow, though. No, no, it's okay. not. I mean, it's tens of milliseconds, maybe, but it's, oh, yeah? but it's still. I mean, this is a lot slower than action potential. Sure, right? so, slow, yeah. but it, it. I mean, it has to do with the indicator and the rate at which calcium is yeah. disposed of in the yeah, cell right. and that sort yeah. of thing. So sometimes it's very fast. It depends yeah. on which one you use, but still, it's you know, it's it's a proxy for cell activity. Sure. And then these, these small cameras have a sampling rate that can follow that also? Yeah, I mean, the signals look really, really good. Yeah. They, they look very nice. Yeah, it's, um... Okay, so, so could... Oh, you have another uh, No, I'm just going to s- change the subject. Yeah. The, uh, it sounds very cool, advanced techniques and stuff that you're doing. Part of the reason you can do that maybe is because you have move to, mm-hmm. to industrial setting where you have more resources. Is that really true? I mean, academics are always thinking, if I move to industry, I would have an unlimited budget and I'd be able to do whatever I want to do. Yeah, that, that, that's not completely true. I mean, there's no such <laughs> a thing as... it's only a little bit true, yeah. it sounds good. No, there's no unlimited budget. <laughs> I mean, that, that's clear. And, and 
I mean, part of my move essentially has been because I mean, there is there is a new new way of doing things in pharma. Essentially, this is uh, in particular in psychiatry, neuroscience in general, which is really the, the many many of these companies are adopting the, the the premise that to develop new drugs, you have to have solid understanding of the biology behind them. So, have a good neuroscience program is critical. And even though a lot of has been known, you know, how he's learned in the past 15, 20 years, uh, in order to come up with, you know, something, a, a good new compound for Alzheimer's, schizophrenia, addiction, you name it, I mean, we still there a lot more that needs to be done. So uh, companies like Pfizer and many others, actually, it's not just one, they, they are adopting now these... Uh, move towards building strong neuroscience programs, build a lot of basic science. I mean, as an example for Pfizer is that uh, when Mike Ehlers became the head of neuroscience three years mm-hmm. ago, I mean, he, Howard Hughes investigator, lots of funding, you know, and he was attracted to Pfizer to really build this kind of neuroscience-based uh, program. And one of the things that they did was to build a postdoc program. And the idea is to have people who do basic science. They're you know not related to the drug discovery process. They're expected to publish. So, in my move, actually, I ended up uh, ended up in an environment that's not too different from what I had before. You know, the science is the same. Uh, th- there are resources that is true. So we have access to things that you know otherwise would be. In an academic setting, you know, they're more difficult to get, uh, but they're not unlimited, actually. You need really to be very careful what you go after and how to plan you know, to do these things. So, what, so uh, w- one of the questions that always comes up for us is, uh, has to do with how directed things are. So we, mm-hmm. we sort of imagine, and I'm sure you did too, and you are in an academic setting that you're allowed to do anything you want or study anything you wanted even though it's not really true because mm-hmm. if you couldn't get a grant to study it, you couldn't actually do it mm-hmm. but we imagine that it that, that is true like mm-hmm. that and we imagine that in pharma there's you know any research group has some kind of mission that that is a long range maybe mission to develop some to solve some particular mm-hmm. kind of problem mm-hmm. so is that true I mean how much Mission uh, orientation do you have? There, there is some of that, and actually, after all, the companies are there to bring products to the market, right? So that's the goal. Uh, and in an area like neuroscience or psychiatry, well, the goal is to come up with products that will help us address some of the needs in, in, in that space. But, I mean, the, the, the philosophy now is that to get there, we need to have, you know, a lot of you know, basic biology work. And so at the very, very early stages... You know, we, we do have a lot of exploratory work that is just taking some of these phenomena, like looking at the way the accumbens integrates information, looking at dopamine effects in the cortex, hippocampus, you name it. We can explore some of these same subjects I mean, we've been working on for quite some time. And by understanding those better, ideas will come that will result in exploring new products. So... Uh, we do have a lot of that still trying to, you know, they... So you think about it, because you've always been interested in schizophrenia, at least as yeah, long as I yeah, know yeah, about your work. Yeah. And there's a kind of schizophrenia theme that runs through all of it. We're looking mm-hmm. for the cause of schizophrenia and mm-hmm. possible treatment. So is that sort of, that's that still is, your goal? for That is right? still, and actually, that's a, you know, I'm uh, in the lobby built at Pfizer. I'm still working in, 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 in those subjects too, essentially. We... 
before moving there, I had a lot of work on prefrontal cortical physiology, how uh, it, you know, developmental trajectories in particular, and how things change in adolescence, and how this adolescent maturation changes or fails to occur in animal models that give you cognitive deficits that relates to schizophrenia, right? That has been a theme that we've been working on in, in, uh, across the years. And obviously that has a lot of implications in terms of thinking about new targets. And you know, that, that's one of the reasons that the, this possibility of moving to Pfizer was attracted to me. Um, and clearly that's a line of work that I think, even though it's still basic science, it can open thoughts for you know where to go and then obviously then there is the, the idea if we identify some target that could be relevant then we'll do the experiments try to see if it makes sense and then we can move it on as a project uh, but everything starts with exploring you know basic uh, you know biological phenomena do you think that I mean, this uh, you may not want to ask this question I guess but do you really do you think that the next generation of anti-schizophrenic treatments will be drugs or might they be deep brain stimulation uh-huh. or something like that? That's a good question. Actually, no, I, 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 um, drugs could be, but there is uh, there are a lot of possibilities that not necessarily drugs. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think there are, and even drugs in a non-standard way, I mean, there are people exploring, for example, early in schizophrenia, these antioxidants and, you know, we, uh, there are and thinking outside of the box is something that might help us get there. So I don't know if deep brain stimulation would be something that will help with schizophrenia, right? I mean, after all, people who think the government has uh, a wire in their brain that is... Uh, no, no, or actually, then no, no, you, no, no, real you, wire. You, 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 yeah, wire. you can tell them you put a real way to get the other one out, but I don't know. But, but still, I mean, there, there is the possibility of using TMS, you know, or some other tools, or even novel ways of doing therapy. You know, devices, I mean, video games. I mean, there's a lot of opportunities on mm. having ways to work with brain plasticity. So is this something that in industry you think is is a, a general, I guess you call it, paradigm shift? So usually uh, Big Pharma would just make drugs by changing the shape of molecules and then yeah. see what happens kind yeah. of thing. And so, but now it seems like they're having more of a bottom-up approach. Is this, is this seem to be something that's changing? Yeah, it's true. And I don't know. I hope it will be successful. I don't know. But it's, uh, I think it's been, it's not, be, I don't think it's been a dramatic change. I think there's been a, a slow shift into uh, using more of the biology-based approach than just taking drugs and, and, chemistry and based the chemistry-based approach, approach. I mean, there's still a little bit of both. But the balance has been moving over the years towards more of the biology-based approach. Is it, do you think that's because you, you mentioned earlier that um, there really hasn't been any new fantastic drugs mm-hmm. that hit the market that are yeah. Yeah. that help with any psychiatric issues? Despite us having a good under, a better understanding on some of the phenomena, I mean, if we, we thought of cognition in schizophrenia, for example. I mean, clearly it is a, involves... Uh, altered information processing in cortical circuits and the hippocampus. I mean, and GABA interneurons, Parvalu interneurons seem to be a critical player in that. So so now the idea is, well, can we restore balance in those circuits? How? And so some of the, you know, there has been a movement towards adopting more of that. Uh, 
I think it will be winning time to tell whether these approaches will, will pan out or not. If there was a if there was an approach that was a non-pharmaceutical approach, mm-hmm. would pharmaceutical companies be interested in <laughs> developing and marketing stuff like that? Are they interested in branching out to other uh, kinds of therapy? Uh, and actually, I, I mean, I, I kind of give you the specifics, but uh-huh. companies are doing that, yeah. Hmm. It's, uh, yeah. So uh, just a, a little tangent off of this. So um, since you are someone who went from a successful academic career mm-hmm. and, and starting a successful uh, industry career. Mm-hmm. Um, is that a, a good trajectory for people uh, who might be interested in industry, for example, if uh, graduate students today or postdocs today may be um, interested in industry for yeah. whatever reason? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, it seems like the trajectory that you took in your career, you still have the option to go back to academics mm-hmm. if you choose to, to do so. So say, like what Charlie said, uh, if some yeah, yeah. boss says now you have to study renal failure and, and, or something like that, <laughs> and you decide that's not what interests you, you still have the option to go back. Mm-hmm. But do you think that option would still exist for someone who went directly in industry at, or, and to try to uh, get into academics What's the later? best timing for, for yeah, career? Well, I think yeah. that's always a good question. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you I, seem to have... I think I... I I mean, this is not something I planned, but it really, I think it happened at the right time and, and at my, the right time in my, my career. Um, probably what I, I mean, it, it depends on what you want, but it's probably more of a two-way thing if you establish some trajectory in the academic world. If you can have ex, you know, experience of being funded, have trained people. And then you move to industry, but you have that past of having succeeded as a, you know, in the academic world with some of the parameters that are normally measured. Then I think you can go back if you want to. But if you go straight off a, out of a postdoc or your PhD to industry, you're pretty much set on that. I don't think that will allow you to go back to the academic world. The one Wait, the postdoc. So you guys have a postdoc. Yeah, exactly. Program. So that, that's the, what I'm going to bring up. The one exception would be do a postdoc in industry. Uh-huh. And we do have a postdoc program. Those kids are fantastic. I mean, they and they do really, they do a great job. They publish well. And for example, in our postdoc program, we had the first ones that I mean, this is relatively new. We started like three years ago, and the, the first three kind of finished this year. Two of them went to other companies, and one went to uh, an academic setting, as a mm-hmm. faculty. So there is, you know. The options are there. So, and that, actually, that could, if I would say, if a grad student is interested in exploring uh, the possible job in industry, maybe doing a postdoc in a company is a good idea because they still will do a postdoc, they will publish, and they will get to see what the atmosphere is and, and what you know, the, the, the culture and the type of work. But so when you got, you actually got recruited to industry, right? Mm-hmm. They like approached you, like mm-hmm. some guy with a yep. suit or something like that, and said, this is what we can give you or something like that? How did that work? shoes. Yeah, that's right. Well, if you look at me, I, I'm, I'm, I'm wearing jeans now, and, yeah. uh, and this is how I go to work. Too, yeah, so, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this is something, I mean, uh, and this was probably part of this change that was taking place at Pfizer in that growing the neuroscience uh you know, essentially, they, they, they went out trying to recruit people from the academic world, trying to mm-hmm. yeah, take on some of the, the, the roles in, in these departments. Yeah. yeah. 
Okay, well, thank you very much, Patricio. This is Ben. Neuroscientist Talk Shop. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, guys.